Gentlemen, we're in chapter 9 of our study in the book of Acts. It's, uh, if you want to follow the geography of this, the best map of all the ones I gave you in your packet will be the one on page 5. Uh, you'll see Damascus rather prominently located there. And just if you're interested in the geography of it. Um, what's the first word of nine uh, one? But. Or some of your translations might have now. But, uh, you know, I can't see it. On page, it, I don't know if it's page five. But it should be the first missionary journey is the no, header. No, yeah. It is on page six. Yeah. Oh, it is. Yeah, mine's, yeah. yeah. Mine's an older copy, but anyway. Uh, it just, that'll be fair. Particularly, you can see Damascus. It's rather prominent on the east side, or the, if you don't know directions, the right side of your map. But we'll get to that in a minute. I just wanted to have it out. What what Luke is doing here is, with that but, but Saul, he's setting up a contrast between Saul and Philip. And that, you know, chapter 8 is really about Philip's ministry in Samaria, and, uh, and then with the Ethiopian eunuch. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. And we had read earlier, Saul is ravaging the church. Now, I want to remind you, just real, real quick, Saul is his Hebrew name, his Latin or Roman name is Paul. If you want to pronounce it the way it would have been pronounced, he was Saulus Paulus. That's how they would have pronounced it at that time. But the text here, Luke is giving emphasis to his Hebrew name because he is a devout Jew. And in doing this, you have to remember a couple of things. Uh, Philippians, uh, Paul gives us sort of his autobiography, he says, I'm a Pharisee of the Pharisees. I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. And he goes through all that. And in Acts 23, which we'll get to at the rate we're going on about March or April. But in chapter 23, when he's defending himself before Festus, he says, with a good conscience, I persecuted the church. So, I mean, I, I want you to make sure you understand what is motivating this man is he's a devout Jew. And as a devout Jew on the Sanhedrin, a Pharisee, he sees the church as a threat. And so that's why he's doing this. Now, now, now you'll, what this chapter does is, is the Lord Jesus Christ directly intervenes in his life to get that zeal and passion directed toward the truth instead of the error. He went to the high priest. Now, at that time, the high priest's name was Caiaphas and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, just a couple of things to notice about that verse. You see again that title, The Way. The early years from about AD 33, when Jesus is crucified and goes back to the Father at Ascension, through about 38 or 39, most people called the church the way. And we do not know why. I mean, there's no references to why, but most people conclude, I think, correctly. It probably comes from what Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and life. They're people of the way. They're people of Jesus who is showing them the way to the Father. Secondly, I want you to notice how, and Luke does this all the time, he stresses men or women. He stresses the role of women. Of all the writers of the New Testament outside of Paul, 
he stresses that. And that, that's just important. And the third thing I want you to notice, these letters that are mentioned are letters of extradition. Now, I want you, I want you to make sure, and you can look at the map, you can sort of see this. Damascus is on the eastern side of your map, and it's in the province of Syria. Jerusalem, which you, know, you have to just let your eye go down along the coast, Jerusalem is in the province of Judea. Judea was a Roman province, had become a Roman province in AD 6 when Rome uh, deposed Archelaus, one of Herod the Great's sons. Syria was where the armies of Rome were. There were four legions stationed in Syria. And Damascus is a Gentile city, but there are a large number of Jews there, and they're converting to Christianity. And so what Paul is doing is he, and he, he receives them from Caiaphas, letters of extradition to bring the Jews who have converted to Christianity from Damascus in another Roman province back to Jerusalem, where the, church, where the, uh, the Sanhedrin sits. Now, do those sentences make sense to you? Okay, two of you, they make sense. The rest yeah. of you are playing living statues. But I just, it's just to understand, why does he have to have letters of extradition? Because there are two different Roman provinces. And that's all. If that's not important to you, don't worry about it. But I just wanted to explain that in case that was something you weren't wondering about. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. And again, if you look at that map, the, the one that's on six there, you can see Jerusalem and Damascus look like they're pretty close together. Well, remember, this map is showing you the entire eastern Mediterranean. So in terms of distance, the distance is about, and it depends, of course, on how you go, but about 135 miles from Jerusalem to, uh, to Damascus. Now, there's another thing that's important about Damascus, and probably one of the reasons why there was a fairly large Jewish population there. Damascus, a key city in, again, the Roman province of Syria, was where the two major international highways met. One international highway was, was called the Via Maris. It went up along the coast, and then it would go over to Damascus. The other one is it went up through the mountains of Jordan. That was called the King's Highway. And they were the major international highways. And I, I mean, they were Roman highways. They were well-kept. They were conducive to travel, using animals, and so on. And so... At Damascus, I mean, Damascus was just one of the most important cities in the ancient uh, world at this time. And so it makes sense why there would be a fairly good-sized Jewish population there. And so Paul has the per, uh, permission to ravage the church there and bring those Jews back to Jerusalem to put them on trial. So that kind of gets the geography out of the road. Yeah, uh, Glenn. Were there others that went into other cities, I mean, was this a systemic cleansing of the, of the Jewish faith? Um, probably, but we do not have explicit record like we do of what Paul's doing. So you have to wonder if Paul hadn't stopped there at Damascus, would he have gone up into... Oh, I bet. I, I would think he would. Antioch, he would have gone to Antioch, which is also in the province of Syria, uh, that is, uh, um, it is exploding in that city. Up into Turkey and then Greece. And- well, yeah, I mean, you're extrapolating out, but in, no doubt, yes. Now, you, you have to remember, though, that what is really going on here 
is Paul is focusing on Jews who converted to Christianity, not necessarily Gentiles. Now, when he comes to know Christ, then he's going to focus on the Gentiles because that's what the Lord wants him to do. But now he is, what he's trying to do is kill the church. I mean, literally and figuratively, because where is it growing? It's growing among Jews in Jerusalem, Judea, and parts of Samaria. And now it's up in Damascus, a major, major city where there's a congregation of Jews, again, because those two highways meet there. And it just stamped, to stamp out the church as it's growing in, in, among the Jews. The reason why I'm asking is you talk about Luke focusing on Peter and Paul, but then you really don't have that account of Mark. Oh, no, that's right. That's right. That's you right. I wonder how many of these others, other people were out there Persecuting, killing, heading towards Egypt. If you got one heading towards Syria, Syria, who's heading towards? Sure. Oh, sure. And I, I don't think there's any question that they they had that level of interest. And the other thing, Luke, Luke does not tell us about the other disciples. He doesn't give us an account. We know they were active, and tradition tells us kind of where they go. But Acts is not an account. Uh, Acts is not a comprehensive account. It's very select and how he's giving the, the, the information. All right, now, they're approaching Damascus, and from the language here in, in just a couple of verses, he's pretty close to Damascus. In that 135-mile oh, journey, he's, I would think, several miles, 10, 50, I have no idea. There's tradition of where he might be, but there's no way to prove it. But as he's approaching Damascus, what happens? A light from heaven flashed around him, falling to the ground, he heard a voice. Now, you know, two things here. The light from heaven flashed around him. You could put there in the margin of your Bible in your note, Shekinah, question mark. This could be the Shekinah, which is the old Hebrew name that was given to the glory of God manifested in the temple and the tabernacle and so on. Because this is Jesus speaking, Son of God, second person of the Trinity speaking, perhaps that light is the Shekinah. And it blinds him, as you'll see in the next couple of verses. So it's this light, this Shekinah, whatever it is, that blinds him, as you'll see. And so he falls to the ground, and he hears this voice say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting the church? None of you are looking up at me and saying I made a mistake. Okay, thank you, three of you. He didn't say that. He said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Which is very, very instructive for us. Because it helps us to understand something this man, Saul, will write about in the first letter to the Corinthians. That the church is the body of Christ. It's figurative language. And Jesus is the head. So Jesus legitimately say, you persecuting the church, you're persecuting me. And so he, it's, a, it's a powerful, intrusive, uncomfortable question. Because remember, I told you this earlier, and Paul will say this when he's before Festus. I persecuted the church with a good conscience. So when he hears this, and what has happened to him and this voice, he naturally says, now the language of, of verse 5 is very important. Who are you 
Lord. Now, the word Lord in Greek is kurios. The word that's translated Lord in the Old Testament with small letters is Adonai. If it's in capital letters, it's Yahweh. So it's, we cannot know how Paul's thinking about this, but he's a Jew. And when he asks, who are you, Lord? The theology of Paul as a Jew behind that question is he recognizes that what has happened to him is a supernatural intervention smashing into his life. And he therefore asks the right question. Who are you, Kurios, Adonai, perhaps Yahweh? I mean, it's, it's almost like, are you really the Lord? And then he says, in verse 5, he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now, this is such a familiar story to most of us. I mean, this is the story you hear in Sunday school class when you're a young child. You hear it preached on a lot. But let's just, just stop for a moment. What has just happened to Paul? Everything he believed, every theological category he had set up in his life, the way he had been taught to think as a student of Gamaliel I, the greatest rabbi of the first century, everything, his entire worldview has been ripped out by its roots because he just heard Jesus talk to him. I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. And so every category, every theological category of Paul's worldview is now shaken. He can't deny what's happened to him. He can't pretend it didn't happen. Obviously, he's not trying to. But this is so profound that Jesus has smashed into his life. Because everything about Saul was he was headed in one direction. Jesus wants him to repent and head in a totally different direction, so to speak. So this is profound, life-changing, earth-shaking, disturbing for Paul. And he, it's going to take him a while to reorganize all these categories, which I want to talk about in a minute. Then the Lord continues, But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The marching orders of Jesus have trumped the high priest. Maybe I shouldn't use the verb trump anymore. Have um, overridden the orders of the high priest. Now, I, I think that's directly, he, he now has new orders. His orders were to arrest the Jews who have converted to Christianity in Damascus and bring them back with these letters of extradition. Now Jesus says, I want you to go into that city. I'll tell you what to do. Again, I mean, you just, you, you, it's so common and so familiar to us. If you try to put yourself in Paul's shoes, this is profoundly disturbing. Now, in a positive sense, but he has to re everything he believed, everything he had learned, everything he had been taught, every perspective that he had about the church is wrong. And in the last few seconds, he's discovered that. What is he going to do with all this? The men who were traveling, verse 7, the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, 
hearing the voice, but seeing no one. This is a public event. Those who were with him, you know, temple police, that the high priest had given him, perhaps other uh, 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 people of the, of the Sanhedrin, uh, other pharaohs. We don't know all who was with Paul. But they saw this. But they, and they heard the voice, but they didn't see Jesus. But everything about it, they knew what had happened. The, the, the voice, the, the Shekinah, and so on. Verse 8. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. Now again, man, just Paul is now powerless, helpless. He can't see. So instead of the triumphant Pharisee on the Sanhedrin with these special orders from the high priest, he's being led into Damascus because he can't see anything. Powerless, helpless. Let's put it another way. Jesus Christ has broken Saul. Pardon? He has, he's broken him so that he's humble. I mean, Saul has literally come to the end of himself. This proud, brilliant, uh, passionate, zealous Jewish leader is now helpless, powerless, being taken by the hand into Damascus. Verse 9, And for three days he without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Presumably, um, this is intentional on his part, but I, 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 I've often thought about that verse. Uh, for three days, he can't see anything, and he's choosing not to eat. He's choosing not to... I mean, what is going on? I think part of it is Paul has to repackage his entire worldview, his entire thought pattern all his theological categories. He must repackage and reorient it around this premise. Jesus is the Messiah. Which is how a Jew of the first century would look at that. He is the Messiah. And if he's the Messiah, then he's my Savior. And if he's my Savior, then he's my Lord. So, in a few minutes... And that experience on the Damascus Road with the Shekinah light that blinds him and the voice of Jesus speaking to him, this man's world has turned upside down. And this is, I would argue, and I think fairly strongly just by deduction, that Paul is taking these three days, among many others that will follow, as a time of reflection and just reorienting his thinking. I mean, do you, do you have? I know it's hard for us to really try to get into Paul's shoes, but you just do, you and I have no idea how disturbing and upsetting and, and unsettling and difficult it is for Paul because he now knows that everything he believed was wrong. Everything he had been taught about this Jesus was wrong and everything he personally believed and embraced was wrong because he was trying to kill the people that were the followers of this guy. Now he's learned that it's worthwhile to follow this guy because he just spoke to me through the Shekinah. And now I, okay, what do I do? And it's like, 
It's like anyone that is a zealous, I guess somewhat of an example, a zealous Muslim or a zealous Hindu or a zealous Buddhist coming to faith in Christ. And now everything they've been taught, in most cases like it is for a Jew at this time, remember, they have 1,500 years of tradition. Because in 1446 is when the law was given, B.C. So that's 1,500 years. So they're turning their back on that. Now, literally, they're not because the text will tell them, and, and Paul will learn, everything is fulfilled in Jesus. But everything now is totally different. I mean, this is just this is so profound. And, in, I, and you know, I don't know any of you real well, so I don't know what the circumstances or conditions of your salvation were. But for all of us, when we come to Jesus and understand really what he's done for us and we accept it by faith, in one sense, we're in the same situation. Not as radical, not as extreme, that we have to repackage everything we believed and repackage it around a thesis. What is that thesis? That Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. His death, burial, and resurrection for me. I've accepted that. Now, does he have a right to make claims on my life? Yes. And so that's where Paul is now. And so the text addresses him as Saul. But, I mean, this, this is the Jew now converted. Okay, any questions about that? Yeah. What's going on here? This seems more like Holy Spirit work than it does Christ work. Christ is very visible, Holy Spirit works very spiritual. It looks like a very spiritual transition here going on in Paul. When you get to the Holy Spirit, never mentioned it. Uh, he will be mentioned in just a little bit when it says the Holy Spirit fills him in verse 17. That's coming. But you're right. I mean, and remember, it's our God is one essence of three persons. So they work in concert with one another. But, I mean, you're, that's a very good observation. It really, really is. But it, I think, is intentional on the part of Jesus, second person of the Trinity, to drive home to Paul the main point. I am the Messiah, and I'm your Messiah. Come to terms with it. And he does. Fred. So another possible way to look at it might be that when, when he realizes it is Christ talking to him, that he then synthesizes the entire Old Testament and all the prophecies and realizes that this is the Messiah that was killed in Jerusalem. And I think you're right. I think that's exactly what he starts to do because we'll read at the end of this chapter that he is, he is teaching the Jews in the synagogue of Damascus that Jesus is the Christ. I mean, that's what we'll read that in verse 22 if we get that far. So that's exactly right. I mean, he is going through all, I mean, he, this guy's brilliant, and he really knows the law, so he really knows the Old Testament, and I'm pretty sure he's just going through chapter and chapter by chapter, book by book by book, and saying, that's about Jesus, that's about Jesus, that's about Jesus. So when he's teaching these people that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, what text do you think he's using? All the Old Testament prophetic texts. Here's what it says, here's what Jesus did. You draw the conclusion. I fought that. For all my life, Paul is going to tell them, but I came to meet him under the Damascus Road. He is the Messiah. These texts prove it. I mean, it's just, this is remarkable. And that's why, you know, Luke correctly zeroes in on him because he will change the world. 
and I don't mean, you know, I, I mean through Jesus, but I mean, he is the missionary to the Greco-Roman world. And then they'll just, he'll plant hundreds of churches all over the Eastern Mediterranean and to the Western Mediterranean after his uh, preliminary release, which uh, we'll get to way at the end of the book. You know, uh, we, we think about where we have come from as uh, Saul Paul <coughs> came from and how gently, in many ways, he was treated by Christ. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. And that old things have passed away. <clears throat> we don't carry that forward as new believers in Christ regardless of our background. That's right. No, that's right. That's right. My favorite passage on that is in Philippians, Paul says, not looking backward, I press on to the high calling. Um, and I, 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 you've heard me say that I've done it with a lot of the guys when I was in higher education and others I've mentored over the years. When you come to faith in Christ, there may be some things you have to make right, but your past is now covered by the blood of Jesus. Amen. Don't look back. If you need to you know, make things right, that's one. But God, Jesus is taking care of the guilt. He's taking care of the judgment for that. So Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those in Christ Jesus. The, the believer learns to not look back, but to look forward. And, you know, so many, it, it, it's hard, I, I mean, I really understand, but so many Christians come to know Christ, and they're going into the future with their eye in the rearview mirror and their foot on the brake. And, and, and that's, I hope you understand what I mean by that. It's kind of a crazy way to put it. But, I mean, they're just, they're always looking back. No. I was challenged, I, I, I went through Hebrews, uh, well, anyway, but I was challenged again by the book of Hebrews. The thesis of the book of Hebrews is, because of the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus Christ, press on, persevere, finish well. Your eye is on the finish line, not your past. Because remember, the author of the book of Hebrews is writing to Jews who come to Christ. And it's, that would have been an enormous struggle for these people. Because they come to know Jesus Christ. Many of their relatives have disowned them. Friends have disowned them. And yet they're, and the, the, the pull, the pull to go back into Judaism was intense. And the author is saying, here's Jesus, and presents him that masterful presentation of Jesus through the book of Hebrews. But he keeps saying, that word is translated usually hupomene, usually translated perseverance. That's all over the book of Hebrews. Move on. Press on. And it's no matter what the circumstances are, don't go back. Go forward. It's not talking about salvation. It's talking about what is the focus of your life now that you become a Christian. And for us in, in, in 2018, as, as men particularly, we must show what a forward finish line, finishing well, however old you are, whatever your age is, that's, that's what the Lord wants. And that's what brings vibrancy to the Christian life. It really does. And it's just, it's so neat because that's exactly what happens to Paul. I mean, Paul, just think of all he could feel terrible about and guilty about. And I mean, people he killed and had killed or threw into prison or whatever. He experiences, and this is what he writes about so much, he experienced the freedom that comes in Christ. The burden of guilt has been lifted. 
could that be the, 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 the thorn in his side that he's... For 2,000 years, people have been trying to figure what that is. I don't know. I, no, I probably, I don't know. It's one of the 9,762 questions I have when I get to heaven. Let's look at verse 10. We're introduced to another guy. I, this guy, I can understand why he is a little bit afraid to do what the Lord wants him to do. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And with that kind of a name and all of that, as we know, he would be a Jewish man. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, here I am, Lord. I love that because that's how often the people that are ready for the Lord, they always respond that way. Abraham responds that way, et cetera, et cetera. And the Lord said, rise, go to the street called Straight. That street is still there in Damascus. There's still a street named Straight. Now, I wouldn't recommend you go visit that right now. Damascus, as you probably know, is a mask of the series of war. But anyway, go to a street named Straight. <clears throat> and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. Now that's really interesting that the Lord Jesus says this to Ananias. To a vision of a man named Ananias, go to a man of Tarsus named Saul. It's really interesting he does it that way. Why does he do it? Because where... Where, if, you, if you look at the map, Tarsus, Tarsus is right here, and Damascus is right. Tarsus, which is a major university city, and a, a major uh, port city, and I shouldn't say major, a port city in the Roman province of Cilicia, which is right next to Syria. So he, the Lord may have said it this way because you know where Tarsus is. Saul's from there. Maybe Ananias, we just don't know. But it's so fascinating that he says, the man from Tarsus, Saul. And he goes on. He's praying. And he has seen a vision of a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Now, do you understand what Jesus is saying? He's had a vision. I've given him a vision that a man named Ananias, your Ananias, is going to go to Paul, lay hands on him, and he's going to be able to see. So the anticipation of Saul is there. He's praying. He's, the Lord is, in effect, through the vision, told him what's going to happen. So Ananias responds, verse 13, that can't be right. I can't be the man. That's, I'm embellishing that a little bit. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard many from many about this man how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. You can't mean him. Legitimate. Very open. Very transparent. Verse 15. But the Lord said to him, Go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles, before kings, and before the children of Israel. Now that's, again, almost astonishing. Because what Jesus says to Ananias, who is supposed to then anoint Saul and give him his sight back, exactly what Paul does. He will call himself and will be called the apostle to the Gentiles. Because he will plant churches in Greco-Roman cities all over the Mediterranean. He will appear before kings. 
Herod Agrippa II. He will appear before Emperor Nero and the children of Israel. You know, we'll see this later on. We get the first missionary journey in Acts 13 and so on. Every time Paul goes into a city, where's the very first place he goes? To the synagogue. Because they are the people that will be most open to understanding the message. Because he's going to use all the Old Testament texts to show how Jesus fulfilled them and so on. So it's a remarkable summary in one verse. Here's the charge. Here's the charge. He will be my instrument to the Gentiles, to kings, and to the children of Israel. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying hands on him, he said, look at this, brother Saul. Now, I mean, I don't know if you underline your Bible. It's just, a, it's a, it just here's brother Saul and, and a couple exclamation points in your margin. Here's Ananias, Jewish leader of the synagogue in Damascus, going in to Saul, who only a few days ago had maybe Ananias on the list to take him back to Jerusalem for trial. Ananias says, brother Saul. What an incredible change. And how do you explain that? Jesus in the gospel. It's the only way to explain that. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which he's come, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And I told you a number of times in our study of the book of Acts, that little phrase, filled with the Holy Spirit, all through Acts. It means filled, I mean, that's, it's a figure of speech, but it means to be controlled by the Spirit. And so that's what he's saying. And so as what happened on Pentecost, as we read earlier, what happened in Acts 10 in the Samarit, among the Samaritans under Philip, now it's happening to Saul. He's baptized, he's filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, this is extremely difficult it's something like scales. The word that's translated scales from the Greek. There's so much. What exactly does that mean? It's a hopox. It's the only time it appears in the New Testament. So we're not exactly sure what this means. Something like scales fell from his eyes. And I mean, does it? What is it? What exactly? We don't know. But anyway, the point is, he regained his sight. So now, as we've learned earlier, that for three days he was without sight. Now he can see again. Notice how this, con- this concludes. Then he arose and was baptized. That, again, is something to underline. It is an extraordinary thing to see. Where would he have been baptized? Well, I mentioned this when we were in Acts 2. Um, how could 3,000 people be baptized in the den of Pentecost? I, I explained to you, those mikvots are all over, all around the, the temple in Jerusalem. And today, you, there are dozens of them that have been excavated. The, sin, the, the, the Hebrew word is mik, mikvot. Uh, is M-I-K-V-O-T is the Hebrew word. But they were the cleansing pools around, all around Temple Mount, all around the synagogues. And that, uh, so Paul undoubtedly would have been baptized in one of those, outside one of the synagogues in Damascus. Now, men, just think about this. Because baptism is, is an ordinance of the church. But what it really is, is a person is publicly identifying with Jesus Christ now. So here's Saul. 
a public person, Pharisee, key officer and representative of Caiaphas, the high priest, a man of confidence, a man of, of, of intellect, brilliant, gifted, zealous for the Lord, was broken by Jesus on the Damascus Road and now is publicly identifying with him. So every Jewish Christian in Damascus, I don't mean that everyone's necessarily there, maybe they were, we don't know that, but here he's publicly identifying with Christ. That is radical life change. This man, Saul, has drawn the line in the sand. I now belong to Jesus. And he, the zeal that he had for the law will now be manifested in his zeal for Jesus. And he will, cha- he will change the world. How much crossover was there between when Jesus kind of announced Paul this way and when Jesus was crucified? No, wait, I didn't catch it. How much what? Yeah, how much time was there overlap uh, between in this time and then when Jesus was crucified? Well, each is three days. Uh, maybe I'm misunderstanding. Paul, before Saul is baptized, it's three days from the time he is. Is that your question? Well, no. I'm talking about that, you know, I'm Jesus who you, you persecute. So that conversation that happened with Saul from there to when Jesus was crucified, what was that period of time? Was it years, months, days? Uh, we are guessing, and it's, it's really hard, but we can get pretty close. It's probably... AD 35 or very early AD 36. So it's two and a half to three years after Jesus went back to the Father. Okay, does that answer your question? Okay. So I mean, it's not very far. You know, it isn't. It isn't. Now I want to. I want to ask you another question. How long is it from Jesus, or excuse me, Saul here meeting Jesus, humbled by Jesus, baptized, until the first missionary journey? From this time, where we are right now, till the first missionary journey, how many years is it? 13. 13 years. That's right. 13 years. Why so long? Well, I mean, that's that's a good question. And we're going to read a little bit what happens. Because Saul goes up to Tarsus. Um, you know, I, I don't know, but I've thought about that a lot over the years when I was studying. And one of the books I read was on the chronology. Anyway. And that astonished me. 13 years, because you kind of get the sense from the way people preach and talk that Paul meets Jesus in Damascus Road, and in one month he's on the first missionary journey. That is not true. First missionary journey is not until A.D., late A.D. 48, early 49. So, I mean, it's that, uh, well, no, uh, late, uh, sorry, late 47, early 48 is when the first missionary journey starts. But anyway, it's 13. Think about that. I, I think some of that is Paul, we know he was teaching up in Tarsus, but I think Paul is working through all of the theology. How he had to refine and repackage his theology. And I think that's why we see that in his letters. And there are 13 of them. You know, of the 27 books of the New Testament, 13 are written by Paul. 
And then when you read the book of Romans, or you read the Corinthian letters, uh, or uh, like Ephesians, they're the deep theological books. Here was a man that deeply and, and methodically and carefully worked through the whole theology of what Christianity stands for. But it was also the organization, too. It was more than just the theology. It was the organization of the church. Well, yeah, and even even to think through what does that look like, because Paul addresses organizational issues in the pastoral epistles, 1 2 Timothy and Titus. So, you know... um, He's thinking, I mean, he's, these are not wasted years. These are years where Paul is meditating, thinking, studying, and putting together the whole theology now that Jesus is my Messiah. Could you see the voice of Jude that you covered? James, Peter, their voice is very different. Their backgrounds are That's right. That's right. Their education is different. That's right. How their letters contribute. That's right. It's very different. I mean, no, I mean, it's absolutely right. And each one has something to contribute to the total the total picture of the church as well as the theology of Christianity. If Paul, if God would not have rescued Paul and there would not have been a Paul, we would really be in a difficult situation. And I'm, because God's not going to make a mistake like that. But putting it positively, you can see why God chose Paul. Because he's so brilliant. His, he had the best education you could possibly get in the Greco-Roman world at the University of Tarsus. And he had the best education you could possibly have had as a Jew when he studied under Gamaliel I. I mean, it's like Moses. Who, you know, God took 80 years to prepare him. God is taking his time in preparing Paul. He trained him. Not he, but I mean, he put him, let him go through all these different And yet in these 13 years, Paul isn't just sitting around. He is teaching. We know that we'll read a little bit about it up in Tarsus. But he, when he is ready, he's really ready. He knows exactly what he's going to say to the Greeks and Romans. He knows exactly what he's going to say to the Jews. He knows exactly how he's going to defend the faith against criticism. He knows exact. I mean, because he sought through all this. That's exa- I mean, that's right. I, that's right. I mean, he is. He he just has to repackage and rethink through everything. But that that because he was so brilliant, that's why one of the reasons why God chose him. And you see it. I mean, he was able to adapt to any situation. When we get to Acts 17, which is when he's in Athens, you see it there. He doesn't talk to the Athenian philosophers like he's talking to Jews. It's a totally different way to package the message of Christ. I mean, that's, that's part of just, I mean, I, the more I study Paul, uh, the more I'm just amazed at this man. And you've got to remember also, in doing what he does, he will suffer greatly. He will be persecuted. He will be beaten. He'll be left for dead. He spends, he, we only know of one, he spends four sex segments of his life where he's in the water. You know, and we read about the one at the end of this book in, 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 the, in, the, uh, in the Mediterranean. Wasn't most of his persecution because he was reaching out to the Jews? I mean, maybe the Gentiles, I mean. Well, it's both and. There are times, like when he's in, in Galatia, the people who are chasing him and lead the persecutions are Jews, Jewish leaders. But as you get into, as he's further into the Greco-Roman world, then some of the, the political leaders do take out after him too. Yeah. 
And don't forget, it's, it's a Roman Caesar who executes him. Caesar Nero, but you're right. But I mean, this guy, I, I just, he's just such an amazing figure to study. With his brilliance, there's, there's a humility and then a willingness to suffer. Because he will suffer. You know, he, he had so many different points he was definite on that he had studied. Through yes. yes. And, and he had to, I, I don't know, to me, I mean, if, we, if any of us were like him at that time, you'd almost have to come to every one of those points <laughs> that he was so adamant about that he'd have to reverse that. And he'd have to think, why, why is this the wrong way? And why has Christ shown me and is teaching me the right way? So that in those different situations and different people, different cultures, he would have an answer for them that he was satisfied and perhaps allowed a great deal of tolerance for the punishment that yeah, he suffered. Yeah. yeah, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And that's just, he's one of, I'm hoping, I, you've heard me say this, I think in heaven, um, new heaven, new earth, and an eternal state and all that, I think we're going, going to go on learning. I mean, I really do. I think we're going to go on learning. Because when we get our new resurrected bodies, we're not omniscient. We'll go on learning. So I like to think heaven will be, Moses will be leading a Bible study for an hour and a half each afternoon on the Pentateuch. And in this corner, Paul will be leading a Bible study on Romans or something else. I, uh, I hope so. I mean, just, to, just to, to really hear the author who was inspired by the Spirit deal with some of those really difficult passages. This is what we meant by this. <laughs> and maybe it won't matter, but I think we're going to go on learning. I really believe that without any question. And and it's just the kind of depth that Paul brought to the Christian uh, movement and the Christian faith and church, ultimately, is beginning to understand when Jesus said, the greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And it's that thought life and thinking through all of the implications and doctrine of Christianity. You have to have your mind in gear. And that's just, and that's, you know, I, presumably that's why you, you come to a class like this. We're doing in-depth Bible study. We're not just hitting the surface because God wants us to study in-depth his word. So that's just, um, that's an exciting thing. But here's this man, that, that issue of his baptism is extraordinary. He's publicly identifying with Jesus. Now, I'd love to be able to finish this before we're done, this next little paragraph. For some days, um, and Luke, when he says that, we're not sure, but the assumption is that it isn't a real long period of time. He was teaching. He was with the disciples at Damascus, and I think it was Woody or somebody said, and, and you know, these are the, this isn't Peter and John. These are the disciples in Damascus. These are the leaders of the new church in Damascus. Is he learning from them? Yes. Are they sharing and teaching? Yes, probably. Verse 20, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, he is the son of God. Now, he's in the synagogues saying, Jesus is the son of God. And that's a messianic concept in the Old Testament. It's all over the place. But now he is the son of God. 
And all who heard him were amazed, saying, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem? It was kind of like you and me. Somebody that led the Anti-Defamation League is now preaching Christ. I don't know if you know what the Anti-Defamation League is. That's like the one of the major Jewish organizations in the United States. It's like the leader of that now preaching about Jesus. I mean, that's kind of what they're saying. What? He, he made havoc in Jerusalem with those who called on his name. And he's not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests. And now he's here. But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. And remember, Christ is the Greek word for Messiah. So, and Luke is explicit here. Whom is he talking to? To Jews in the synagogues of Damascus. Proving what? That Jesus is the Christ. And I think it was Fred who said he's taken a lot of those Old Testament prophecies. Here's the prophecy. Here's what Jesus did. You draw the conclusion. He's the Christ. I mean, it's just, it would, oh, it's one of the, wouldn't you have loved to have been there and hear Paul preach on this? Man. The word, the word proven, I, I spent some time looking that up, and it, it's a word that means to, to knit, to unite, to synthesize, and so he's, he's taking Good. all the all the, the Old Testament prophecies Absolutely. and he's, he's Absolutely. putting together the package that people can Absolutely. understand. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's great. That's great. One more thing. Look at 23. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. Now, uh, Luke does this, John does this, a lot of the right. The Jews, that doesn't mean every Jew. It's talking about the Jewish leadership in the synagogues. That, you know, that doesn't mean every Jew. But the Jews, meaning the leadership plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. Now, kind of, what does that mean? Kind of remember how cities of the ancient world were built. Every city in the ancient world had a wall around it, usually a high wall, formidable for defense. And they had gates. It was at least normally a gate for each direction, north, south, east, and west. So why, why are they watching the gates? Yeah, they, they want to catch him. Is he trying to go out of the city? So what happened? But his disciples, that is meaning the disciples of Jesus, who are now loyal to Paul, took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall. That's a little bit through the wall. It's hard to know exactly what that might have looked like. Lowering him in a basket. And the basket was like, uh, you and I might call it like a hamper basket. I mean, a basket of significant size, not the little basket you go out and gather some apples with off your tree. But, I mean, a large hammer as they let him down secretly, and, and Paul, uh, Paul goes. And it tells us in the next verse, in verse 26, he goes to Jerusalem. So he makes that 135-mile trip from Damascus down to Jerusalem. So you, you're beginning to see what will become a normal pattern in Saul's life, soon to be called Paul, uh, as he preaches the truth and declares that Jesus is the Christ persecution follows. And it's so often, in these early years, it is so often the Jewish leadership in the various synagogues, etc., of these cities. 
All right, now we will be able to, get, I want to introduce to you the next section here. We'll never get it finished. But are there any other questions or comments about, because kind of the narrative about Paul's conversion and what happens to him is, uh, is over. Now we're going to start to move into another section for a little bit of time before we get back to Saul. All right, now, this next section is Paul goes to Jerusalem. This would have been, and it's, it's interesting, but this would have been a very dangerous thing to, for Saul to do. Right? I mean, a very dangerous thing for him to do. Um, Jews have been kicked out of, by, by Rome, out of Jerusalem, only the apostles were still there. Right? That's right. I mean, most of, most of the Jewish Christians have fled. and I mean, so he's going back into the cauldron because now... As the Sanhedrin hears what's happening, everything. Paul's now the enemy. <laughs> he had been our leader, one of the key zealous guys. Now he's the enemy, but he goes down. And when he came to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. Now, here we must assume, when Luke says the disciples, it is the Peter and James and John and this core leaders as well as others who have come to faith. And they were all afraid of him. Why? Because they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him. Literally, that word is under his wings. The thought of Barnabas took him, that phrase took him, is a, it's a protective function. Barnabas protects him. Now we were introduced to Barnabas way back at the end of chapter 5. Well, actually at the end of chapter 4, excuse me, where Barnabas is a Levite from Cyprus who sold some of his land to give support to uh, the people of the church in Jerusalem who didn't have enough because they were being ostracized and lost uh, so much of their, their, their sustenance for living. The Barnabas is now back on, on the scene. He brought him to the apostles and declared to them two things. Look at what it says. I lost my place. Declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So what Barnabas, it's really fascinating, Barnabas does this. Barnabas becomes a spokesman and protector, took him under his wings and says, listen, here's the story of what happened to this guy. And so he reviews all of that, emphasizing he's preaching in the name of Jesus. So he went in, this would be Saul, went out in and out among them in Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. Now, do you remember who the Hellenists are? They are the Jews of the diaspora who had gone all through the world, more than likely just Eastern Mediterranean, and they're speaking Greek. They're not speaking Hebrew. They're speaking Greek and not speaking Hebrew. And so they are really disputing with Saul. I mean, they, they are livid, and they're the ones that are seeking to kill him. 
And the brothers learned this. These would be the brothers in Christ in the Jerusalem church. They brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus, his hometown. So under the protective care of Barnabas and the key disciples of Jerusalem, because the Hellenistic Jews want to kill Paul or kill Saul, he goes back to Tarsus. We will not see him again until 13 years later. So from here on, from this, this, this passage now that closes out in Acts 9, we won't hear about Saul until we get to Acts 13. So that's a 13-year block of time. And as we talked very briefly a couple of minutes ago, what the Lord, I think, was doing among many other things. Okay, I'm going to stop there because I just I didn't realize it was so late. But um, there's some more I want to say about verse 31 and so on. And then we'll get into Acts uh, 10 next week as well, which is another great passage of Scripture because now God does something in Peter's life. Peter has to understand that a new era has dawned. And what's going to happen to Peter and Joppa? All right, I feel like I should give you an assignment to make sure you got all this, but that doesn't work real well, does it? I'm just kidding. Let's pray here. Lord, thank you for the Word of God. Thank you for the excitement and energy and zeal that we see in the word of God in the man like Saul. Thank you for the incredible transformation that you bring to a life when they put their faith in Christ. Saul epitomizes that. He is totally, totally transformed. And uh, thank you, Lord, for the incredible witness he will be. We owe so much to him because he evangelizes much of the Mediterranean world in the first century. Uh, he and his disciples, and we'll study some of that later on. Thank you that that work continues. We now represent you, and help us to be men of the Word of God, men who dig deeply into the Word, men who have clarity of doctrine, understand the key things of the faith, and can defend them, because this world is a world that is increasingly becoming more, and not just neutral and complacent about Christianity, antagonistic to Christianity. So, Lord, we have to know what we believe and why we believe it. So I trust you to these men. I ask you to watch over them. Dismiss us here with your blessing as we go our separate ways. We look forward to regathering again a week from now. And may they represent you well in all they say and do in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. See you next week.